welcome to the second day of the conference. Uh, this first panel is focused on rethinking the world and self. And first up, we have Philip Tovey. Um, Philip has a background in the military and policing and is currently a senior strategist for the civil service. And his talk today is going to be focused on policing in the UK. Thank you very much. Okay, I think I got the longest title award and I'm probably not going to cover off three, uh, three quarters of it, so forgive me for that. I just wanted to win that title. Okay, so what lengths would you go to prevent harm of another? If it was likely that your friend's drinking was going to lead to a heart attack, or your five-year-old friendships group was a little bit questionable, or your colleague's prestigious academic work risked destabilising the economy, or provoking a war, or if that retweet of a dancing cat in a waistcoat ultimately swayed a democratic decision the wrong way. When would it be right for you to intervene and what would determine the means of your intervention? Would you, for instance, forcibly deny your friend alcohol or steal and burn your colleague's manuscripts? Or would you even kill? You could say, of course, that all these are context-dependent. They're causally complex, they're unlikely to generate harm or insufficiently harmful in the first place. Or you need further information, you need more history, you need more intelligence to make any type of judgement. Or indeed that you've got no right to intervene in the first place. You might cite moral responsibility or some other liberal values, and you'd probably be right. Well, look, I'm going to make it easy for you. I've got a crystal ball, and it's pretty clever. It's designed with a predictive analytic based on a computer algorithm that can ascertain within 99% certainty the future outcome of any given interaction within the world. Happy days. It works by taking the known, validated information about someone or something against a number of threat and risk factors, modelling all the complexity and running through all the possible outcomes and produces an output, a prediction. So, let's give it a shake and see what it says. Notional shake of crystal. Um, will my five-year-old cause another harm because of his current associates? The answer is, I could have told you this before the crystal ball, yes, he probably will. Um, in 20 years' time from now, however, uh, in the year 2038, my five-year-old will cause another harm due to the influence of his current friendship group. Well, brilliant, that's great. Um, with this knowledge, I can now safely intervene. So let me text my wife, hello, darling, make sure Jack doesn't play with those little anymore. Okay, done. But why stop there? I really care about my son's future. Um, and if I'm serious about pre preventing harm from another... Um, then I should make sure this prediction doesn't come right. I'm going to ensure that his environment for the next 20 years uh, makes it hard for him to get into trouble. I'm going to lock him in a padded room. And I'm going to make sure that he thinks that it's more likely that he'll get caught breaching any rules. Uh, and that it's more risky if he does. I'm going to put 24-hour CCTV in the room and I'm going to fill it with fire ants if he breaches any of them. Um, and of course, I simply won't let anyone see him for not wanting to give, the, give him the opportunity for another to get harm. And I will have averted um, another getting harmed in some way, and Jack will be happy. So, great parenting, great societal outcomes. And of course, this is completely proportionate and justified. For the sheer variability and, uh, of the potential scenarios that sees another getting harmed because of Jack's current friendship group, and the multiplicity of factors that could affect the future outcome, mean that early intervention optimises Jack's and the other's chances of avoiding harm. Now, before you start asking me how much I had to drink last night and Googling social services number, let me just pose you one more scenario. So I spoke to my wife this morning and she said 
that Jack, my five-year-old, uh, informed her that Archie, his classmate, uh, is planning to push Amber over in the mud tomorrow morning, uh, just as they go into walk into school. And Archie's going to get Jack to execute the push, clearly an evil genius protégé. <laughs> Uh, so, do I intervene? Um, whereas Jack's present friendship group might still be of concern to me, it's going to happen over a 20-year period, or in, in a 20 years to come. And it's much more plausible that Amber will get harmed tomorrow morning. Archie has a known history of meticulous planning and execution. And it's much clearer what harm might come of it. The muddy puddle outside the school gate is notorious for head-to-toe mud coverings, embarrassment, painful grit in the eyes, and even worse, the painful scrubbing of the cheeks by distraught mums. So clearly, I don't need the crystal ball here. In the latter scenario, both the likelihood and the severity of harm are higher than in the former, and we would typically express this as risk. And we could even strengthen the justification here by including an assessment of threat. Jack has the capability to push Amber in the mud, and owing to Archie, Archie's masterful influence and ability, nothing else I'm sure, he has the intent, he wants to do it. This now presents as a relatively high threat and risk situation. But if you remember correctly, the crystal ball was certain the influence of Jack's current associates will cause harm to another. So now I'm questioning how sure I am that Jack will follow through with Archie's plan regardless of the intervention. And I have a choice, and my grounds for intervention suddenly become much more problematic and contested. Now, although somewhat uh, trivial in consequence and questionable in the construction of that um, short uh, introduction, what I hope to have exposed is central issues of one, comparative judgments and of relative vulnerability and their source of determination are based on two metaphysical constructs, that of threat and risk, and as such are unlocatable in space-time. And two, that the legitimacy of preventative strategies based on probabilistic epistemological grounds, as in one, is predicated on a severe proximal bias and objectification of the other. And this is largely to do with what I think point three is the most basic and often overlooked aspect of any account of the future, that is, of its undefinitive temporal range and its phenomenal character at range. <coughs> The difference between Jack harming someone in 2038, owing to his current friendship group, and his pushing Amber in the mud tomorrow is not comprehensively addressed in the sources of time consciousness we might routinely turn to, such as Husserl's horizontal intentionality, Derrida's genesis, or Noel's inactivism. And whilst they purport to that which is extensive, anticipative, or extended in mind, they all fail to give a satisfactory answer to the distance or far expansion of temporality at ranges beyond even hours, let alone many years. In general terms, they hover on or around the present and only nod to the future. They never actually go there. Reinforcing this idea, Barra states that it takes particular effort to bring the deepest reaches of temporal constitution to evidence and find adequate words to express them. Derrida suggests that if the future is always in some way always preceding the present and past, then the intelligibility and significance that depend on it essentially run the risk of definitively compromised by this. Further to this, as Jacuz has recently illustrated, one's choice, or actualizations as she calls them, places doubt in the factual stability of our concepts and judgments about the structure and phenomenal content of temporal events as real. In the same way we can re-territorialise re the hammer, using it as a bookend or even as a weapon, the same is true of the past and future events. 
Therefore, quote, no matter how real or factual the past or the future event may be, its causal efficacy on the present is ambiguous in character. However, all of the cases that I cited earlier, the drinker, the active terrorist cell, are temporarily biased. Temporarily biased. That is, the outcomes are of the future, as any threat surely is, as threats only exist from the future. They can materialise into harm or damage, but if not realised, they simply become epistemologically extinct. That the past can house no threat, and the present transforms it into something phenomenologically different, a shift from the propositional to the perceptual. Therefore, those events all presuppose a solution within their framing, that of intervention and prevention. And of course they do, for as Bradley states, we are existentially biased towards the future, uh, and we prefer good experiences of the future to, to those of the past. Um, therefore, a policing model that from its inception had the strategic instruction to prevent, as it did in 1829, from the quote, it should be noted that from the outset the object to be attained is the prevention of crime. To great ends, every effort of policing should be directed. So policing was to be a hindrance, an obstacle, an impediment to the eventuality of crime and whose strategic success was to be predicated on its ability to influence, um, deter, deny crime from happening, not to investigate, counter, <coughs> defeat or destroy, but to prevent. It positions a worrying dilemma for a notion of futurity already potentially compromised, susceptible to re-territorialisation and propositional in phenomenal character. And this matters for change only but a few condition in, in Jack's scenario, such as his current friendship to be one of an abusive parental home setting or a friendship group that include a young teenage, teenage county lines drug runner, and effectuality becomes a serious concern. And then confound all of this with the previously stated propositions, the drinker, the academic propagandist, the social media political activist, the terrorist, and many more. And concurrently, simultaneously, worsening um, school ground altercation on violent assault, the threat to life from an unknown caller to an MP, the high-risk registered sex offender being released this afternoon, seemingly low-level Facebook crime that's just come in this morning, and a right-wing extremist group marching through town at lunchtime. What do I prioritise? Well, the Lebanasian amongst you are going to be very stretched, very tired, uh, very quickly, I suggest. This presents the current situation that's faced by UK policing. It's increasing in complexity and volume of crime. It's creeping scope that has further broadened and confused the police's remit. And decreasing resources have created a sharp intensification on prioritisation, by which I mean the immediate selection and allocation of resources to a specific task over another, ordering them in relative importance and resourcing them thus. So on the other hand, the solution could be quite straightforward when thinking about my intervention with Jack. I've applied what is known as a situational crime prevention strategy. I've increased the effort of offending, I've increased the likelihood of getting caught and the risk in doing so, whilst reducing the opportunity, largely through environmental or situated measures. We can design out crime through engineering spa the spatial environment relationship to it. But I hope you agree that my treatment of Jack was at best shamefully disproportionate and at worst ethically unjustifiable ingress into a future that I can't be in the least bit certain of. And it's not because of its range. Indeed, my intervention to stop Amber being pushed in the mud is of equal uncertainty, regardless of, it, of its comparable approximation to the present. And as a situational crime theory is predicated on affecting geo, the geospatial, it is an indirect strategy, 
It is group and predominantly offender-focused. If targeted and applied at an individual level, situational crime prevention amounts to an ex extremely severe use of force. But there has been a decisive shift in recent years um, away from an indirect strategy in policing towards one of an individual-centric model of which places emphasis on the prevention and early intervention rather than reaction to alleviate vulnerability. So, for example, of futural things, and I use that things in the broader sense, even something as indisputably present as my embodied self, such as my big toe, can fail to demonstrate a strong phenomenology, as Parsons Ursel observed that one's physiology exists not only in a different spatiality, but also in a different temporal state. An example of a tall gentleman, or I suggest anyone, the big toe operates in a neurosensory future state, as the synaptic signal from the brain takes approximately 60 seconds to go from toe to cortex. Therefore, the brain conducts a temporal recalibration in order to synchronise uh, expected outcomes with the protected instigator of the sensory stimulus. That we don't even have an experience of that which is neurologically determined to be in a future state as future, even when it's part of our own bodies, should flag grave concerns about prioritising on, on proximation. So, and my toe is my toe, not the toe to be, or my toe of what ifs, my maybe, or my anticipated toe. Yet it is the compromised fu futurity that Derrida embodies. So again, returning back to, Jaren, to Jack, current policing interpretation is that him pushing Amber in the mud tomorrow is equivalent to my big toe. It's the future, but is experienced as presently embodied. And whilst the harm caused in 2038 by Jack is still of the same future, it's disembodied, senseless and lacking any verticality. Or maybe we could simply uh, substitute this for the cognitive. But when I hold a future scenario of Jack uh, in mind in 2038 or Jack tomorrow morning, uh, do they have different phenomenological structures? Clearly they can differ in content, both in terms of if intentional objects that appear, say a school teacher versus a senior manager, and clarity, they could be detail or fuzzy, but their self-givenness doesn't structurally change. We all here, I think, are happy to grant that there is such a thing as perceptual and sensory consciousness, but how can we be conscious of something that is yet to happen? Well, um, we can think about it, and our lives are constantly punctuated by episodic conscious thoughts. However, the phenomenology of this thought is centrally, certainly debated. But even as uh, strong critiques such as uh, Jesse Pritz refutes... Lovely, my um, script has just kicked itself out. <laughs> this, this, this is some like, quaint little witty thing that I'm doing to kind of say I can't predict the future. That was well uh, choreographed. But always have a contingency. Um, whilst I do this, actually, there's a good experiment that you can do. So if everyone wants to hold out their finger and point to something. Everyone point at him. But don't point at me. <laughs> <laughs> now point at, point at someone else. You are. OK. You are having, now, I would argue, an experience of the future. Your finger is in the future. Does, is anyone having that experience right now? Thinking of the bishop's finger. You're thinking of the bishop's finger. <laughs> that's in the future. And that's in the future. 
So you can see actually just by that short little experiment, whilst it was funny to oh, get you to point, um, what actually what it actually tells us is that we don't experience the finger of the future, we experience it of the present, but it is clearly at a distance before us. So, skipping on somewhat, apologies for holding the phone in such a way. Um, I do quickly just want to um, talk about selves. Um, so when you take this radically invasive shift from the spatial to the subjective, and then you hold that the future is in question, and the unit of... Uh, prevention has gone from the geospatial effects to a group, a dispersed effect, indirectly, and focus the unit measure on the individual, you then ask questions of how can I determine um, what my predictive intervention should be based on that future self. I have to make a decision, a determin determination of someone else's vulnerability. So it's a very intersubjective um, view. And in order to do that, um, I think it's quite problematic because, as Galen Strawson points out, you, we don't necessarily think about ourselves coherently over an expanded range of time. We have what he calls uh, an episodic self-referentiality. So I might not think of myself as the same person. I might not even recognise myself as a self um, in the further past, so from when I was 14, to the further future, so when I'm going to be 50 or 60, I don't identify myself as a self. So a policing tactic that's based on prevent preventative measures to stop people becoming vulnerable when they themselves don't even consider themselves potentially as a self is extremely problematic. And it asks really serious questions of the legitimacy of policing, especially given that policing tries to remain objective and it draws its source of objectivity from maintaining and preserving the law. But as Monjescu points out, actually maintaining and preserving law doesn't generate stability. It generates the opposite. It changes. So my contention, just to conclude, is that policing needs to um, be very aware of and more open with what its strategic intent is. It tries to not have one for some of the problems that I've outlined, but it, in just by acting, it creates a different future. Um, and so I think I'll leave it there, missing a couple of points. Thank you very much.